Uh, Lord, give us ears to hear today, soft and pliable hearts to the pleadings of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, help me to teach rightly and well enough to be of use to you and to what you want to do in the hearts and lives of all who are yours and what you're willing to do in all who will welcome you. And as always, give those who hear today discernment to weigh everything and the grace to hold on to what is good. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, at uh, NHC, this uh, National Health Care this week, we, I go every week, I had an interesting conversation with one of the patients there. At least it was interesting to me and him. He wanted to know about the free and evangelical free church of America. He said, what, what is that? What's that mean? It was on the, it was on, uh, I think it was on the bag and is also on the calendar. So I told him about it. You know, the bottom line is that the, it means that each congregation is free to manage its own affairs without interference from denominational authorities, and they were so sensitive about that happening that they put it right there in the name, Evangelical Free Church. Uh, back in the early days of uh, this church, uh, for a joke sometimes, I told people that it referred to what my rate of pay. That, uh, and that's the way it was for a few years. When we started, that's the way it was. Since 1991, I haven't been able to say that, but uh, now I just assure people that before I was paid to be good, I was good for nothing. So, <laughs> well, he said, he said, well, I was wondering if it was like Free Will Baptists. He said because they have free in their name, and and they and they seem to be really strict about things, and so I was wondering if that's if that's what it was, and. I said, no, that, that free is about something different. They, they emphasize free will to the extent that they believe we opted into salvation and we can opt out again by the same exercise of our free will. It, uh, free will Baptist doctrine uh, includes a belief in what they call conditional eternal security. Conditional eternal security. Which, which seems a little, I mean, just the sound of it, sounds a little oxymoronic to me. It has, you know, it kind of has the feeling of, uh, oh, lovers pledging their eternal love for each other as long as they keep their good looks and stay thin and maintain their health and don't, don't get on each other's nerves too much. You know, as long as those things are in place, I'll love you eternally. It's, it's absolutely secure. I've always done a, uh, when I've performed wedding ceremonies, I... I've always uh, done kind of a traditional, well, just no, not kind of traditional, a traditional service, and uh, I like the connection to what their, to the words their parents said and their grandparents and their great grandparents. I like that, and it, and you always use the words till death do us part. Uh, I, I've heard of ceremonies that replace that phrase with as long as love shall last. As long as love shall last. If it, you know, if I ever attend, and I haven't seen that, I've read about it. If I ever attend a wedding at which those words are spoken, as long as love shall last, I don't know what you'd be thinking. I, I would be thinking, we, we spent too much on the wedding gift. We, <laughs> we, we shouldn't have got what we got, as long as love shall last. So, you know, it's like, how can eternal security be conditional? And it, and it seems if the conditions aren't met then it's neither eternal nor secure. 
so conditional eternal security. So you, and so I, I said, we talked about that. I said, you can see why people who believe that would tend toward strictness, maybe even toward legalism, maybe even toward a works kind of salvation. Because if, if certain sins or a certain accumulation of sins uh, could separate a saved person from God, you, you'd want to be on the safe side, right? You, you Certainly you would tend towards strictness. And, and so anyway, we talked about that. And he said, well, we've, we've always believed, and he was a, a church here in town, a, an active member of a church here in town. He said, well, we, we've, we believe once saved, always saved. That's, we believe once saved, always saved. And, and I do too. And we got to talk about that some too, because I, because I do too, but I hope that's not shocking to you. I try not to use the phrase so much anymore, uh, because while I continue to believe that any person who's been genuinely saved will be ultimately saved from sin and death, none lost along the way, I'm, I'm just afraid that the phrase once saved, always saved has, has come to be taken pretty broadly to mean that anyone who makes a profession of faith in Christ at any time in their lives, that person is eternally secure in Christ, even if subsequently, you know, his life his character, his practices, his habits, his speech, everything about him from that point forward is no different, no different for having believed. No different at all. And for years and years and years on end till death do us part. And if that's what somebody means by, you know, once saved, always saved, if that's what they're thinking... It's I, I've come to see a, a danger in that because it seems to me to expose people potentially to God's eternal <coughs> wrath because they've been inoculated against a genuine salvation by the kind of the injection of a false and dead assurance. Over the course of years, I have seen, and you probably have too, I've seen, I've known, I've even loved too many unconverted believers. In other words, don't, don't draw the conclusion right now and run out of here that the pastor's become a heretic. Hear me out, please. But I've known and loved too many people who say they have believed and still believe in Christ, but they have not been changed, converted into something else, still pursue sin and enjoy it without any apparent conflict, um, uh, over the course of years, unconflicted about aspects of their lives where it seems like they ought to be at least uh, conflicted about it. Uh, utter, in some aspects of their lives, utter contradiction to the will of God is revealed in the Scripture. Uh, 
maybe, kind of maybe, maybe some of this, you know, genuinely and, and quickly bored by all things Bible-related. Um, not particularly drawn to worship God or to love the brethren, or to pray, or to do just do what Christians do and live as Christians live. They, they say they believe, but they've not been converted. They did something at one point in their lives. They prayed a prayer. They, they got baptized, maybe. They raised their hand when the evangelist said, you know, if you'll make an appeal, and if this is you, believe, raise your hand, or something like that. And... They're the same as they were before that happened, over the course of years. Uh, too many. And, and I'll say this too, I think I'm responsible for some of them. Because I taught them right out of the chute, lesson number one. It was my lesson number one too. Lesson number one, never ever doubt your salvation. Because I was with them when they prayed the prayer. I said, I heard you. I was with you. I, I'm a witness to it. You prayed. You prayed. You asked Christ into your life. I heard it. You said all the right things about your sin and about Christ's death for your sin and resurrection from the dead. I, in some cases, I gave them the words to say. I said, I prayed the words and to say, if you can take them for their own, your own, you take them, you repeat them after me. To say, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to pray. So we'll just pray what I pray. If you, you know, if you're sincere in it. And I even, of course, I baptize some of them, validating that. So they believed. So they believed, or at least they said they did, or maybe even they thought they did. But somehow, somehow, for some reason, they were never converted. They never changed from what they were to, to something else. And they almost always, in the case of such people, uh, drifted away from the church. And not this, just this church, of course, but, but any church. And, and, you know, years later, their lives are not distinctively Christian in any way other than that they say they believe in Christ. Did you ever read, uh, I've, well, uh, you, don't, you might not have to, you, you don't have to indicate this if, you don't, if you'd rather it not be known. Anybody here read Babylon B online, the Babylon B? It's a, it's a very snarky, uh, ob, uh, often painfully funny fake Christian news site. Fake news. None of it's real. Well, those, those fake news writers there, they know what I'm talking about. Here's a recent story. Headline, local story, local news. Unrepentant hedonist really banking on sinner's prayer he recited at age seven. Short story has a dateline, a name, you know, a date and a and a uh, town, but it's not real. As he continues to live out a vigorous and shameless pursuit of anything and everything that gives him any degree of temporary pleasure, sources confirm Friday that local unrepentant hedonist Justin Bergman, 29, is really banking on the sinner's prayer he recited as a small child. 
After a sleepless three-day binge of drugs, alcohol, and sex, Bergman was approached by a friend who expressed concern over the man's eternal soul, to which he is said to have replied, Don't worry about me, man. I asked Jesus into my heart a long time ago. Me and God are good. Close quote. Well, here, continue quote. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I did that whole thing. I'm a Christian, he added, before replying to text from his drug dealer and a married woman whom he's currently seeing. I hope you're not judging me, he cautioned. Pressed about the legitimacy of his walk with Christ, Bergman reportedly replied, if I knew where my Bible was, I'd prove it to you. The guy who helped me say the sinner's prayer wrote it in the front of my Bible that I was saved and going to heaven with the date and everything, so I'd never forget or question it. I'm totally good, he confirmed. Here's another headline from the B. Man denied entrance into heaven based on spotty Awana credentials. <laughs> Here's another. Man's walk with Jesus in middle of 38-year-long detour. These are parodies. I mean, it's, it's all fake. It's all fake. You know, it, there's not really anybody who's counting on a prayer they prayed when they were seven. But there is, right? <laughs> right? There's no one really counting on spotty of water credentials. Right? But there is. There are. There, these are parodies of real, live, professing Christians. You know, people that self-identify as a Christian say, yes, I'm a Christian. Who say to believe, or at least they believed... And yet they've not been changed. Well, so their so their whole manner of life in the in these kinds of cases is a denial of Second Corinthians five seventeen, which says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come." You know what "behold" means? We don't say it much. What do we say and say? "Behold, look!" Right? <laughs> look! Well, behold, look, means there's something to be seen, right? There's something to look at. There's something to see. Behold, people can see it. And the unconverted believer's sense of assurance is based on the, Christ, on the, on the concept, you know, the conviction that that's not really true. That's not really true in all cases. It is in a lot of cases, but not all cases. They would think. They'd read it this way. With some, or they'd say this, with some people who are in Christ, they remain the same old person they were before. Behold, the old is still there, but rest assured the new will come one of these days or, or has come in increments so small and, and so private that it cannot be observed. You can't behold it. Jesus says rather plainly, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does any, a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. He, he said things like that a few times. You, know, you look through the, God, you know, there's various settings that he said. It was, it was really kind of a, a favored image of his, a standard illustration 
So he says, you don't know the soul of a person by what he says about himself. You know the soul of a person by the character that's reflected in his behavior, by the produce of his life and conduct. This sanctuary right here has been our place of corporate worship for 20 years or so. And for almost all of that time, maybe from day one, I can't remember, the, the platform has been, we've had different arrangements, but it's been decorated by these, same, these four trees, potted trees you see me behind me here. In all that time, not one of them has borne any fruit at all. No apples, no pears, no cherries, no oranges, plums, no nothing. Therefore, you won't be shocked to learn they're totally fake. <laughs> they're completely fake. They're not trees at all. They, they can't be fed. They can't be watered. They have no roots. They can't bear fruit. Even the leaves, I've seen them up close several times. Even the leaves are fake. Those things, they're all about, they are all about appearances. Totally. It's all about appearance. The, and the, it's a, they're all about the appearance of something living. But they are dead, lifeless things. They, they could be, I don't really want you to think this way permanently, but they could kind of be monuments to the unconverted believers who pass through maybe this church or any church, all churches from time, now and again, all leaves, no fruit, all show, no go, all hat, no cattle, whatever you want to say, right? All talk, no walk. They got no roots, no growth, no produce, not real. Paul's uh, first letter to the church at Thessalonica says this, this very near the beginning. He, he, here's, a, here's a verse, it's 1-4, one, one I'm going to read a few verses. For we know, brothers, we know, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you. This is right on target to what I'm talking about. Good, tell me how you know. <laughs> how do you know they have been chosen by God? We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Here's the next verse. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And what I read there is when you heard the gospel, you were, and it's like, it's a, it's effusive kind of language, isn't it? You, you were, you, you were full conviction. You, you were overwhelmed with your need for the gospel. And you know, when we preach, you didn't just pull your chin and say, well, that's interesting. Well, like a, the, the gentleman at Mars, we'll hear about this later. His full conviction. You were over need, overwhelmed with your need for the gospel, need for the Savior, your, your moral culpability before a holy God. It, it wasn't, when we preached to you, he says, we, it wasn't about 
how to fix your life and it wasn't about what mama wanted you to do or what grandma wanted you to do. It wasn't about using Jesus as a means to getting something else. It wasn't even the prospect of an of a intimate relationship with a perfect man, Jesus. And, he, and he's not finished about how he knows. We know, brothers, you're chosen of God because how you receive the gospel. And he's not finished. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come." So he says, we know God chose you. How do we know? The way you received us, the gospel, here's how else. They took those who preached the gospel to them as their role models. You became imitators of us. You wanted to be like we were. We, they, they aspired, they even dared to be like Christ in the kind of people they were. They wanted to do what Jesus would do. That's verse 6 and 7. There, there was no, with the, these Thessalonian believers, there was no, oh good, now I'm saved, I have heaven, heaven is assured, and I'm free to sin without consequence, with, you know, without eternal consequences anyway, and you know, we're good there, we got that covered. There was none of that. They, here, here's how else they knew. There, here's how else Paul knew. Their faith didn't fold under pressure. But when stress came, you know, when, when there was a price to be paid because of their faith, they were willing to pay it. Not only they were willing to pay it, they did it with joy. They were happy to. That's verse 7. In the Greenfield Bible study, Greenfield Assisted Living Place, our, we were in Acts, and we just had this past week where they where the, where the uh, disciples came back, the apostles came back after having been beaten and warned not to teach in the name of Jesus. They came back rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. That's like a real faith. They were not Christians of convenience. They didn't become secret Christians when it meant paying a social price. Here's how also he knew. He knew. They put away their idols and served the living God instead. Their, their life changed. The big, the big rocks, the big items changed in their, in their life. The controlling factors of their life changed. They put themselves in the Lord's service instead. That's verse 9. Here's how else they, Paul knows. They're the real deal, not fake Christian trees. They had a genuine and heartfelt longing for the Lord's return. Their, their hearts said, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. 
They acted like it. I'm sure they talked like it too. They weren't conflicted about it because it would mess up their life plans. Their, their hearts weren't bent toward the world in the throes of sin and death. They were bent toward the world to come. That's verse 10. And, and I'll say this. I'll, I would think, I, I would just be sure, I, I am sure, that there were more things about those believers that gave the apostle confidence that they were the real deal. I can't imagine that in these verses that he is trying to co compile an overall list of how you know that God has genuinely chosen someone, that they are in the faith, that they, that they are not, you know, they're not only, a, it's not a verbal concession, something they say or something they say, even say to themselves, but it, but they have really turned to God. God is doing his work of transformation in them. And, and, and here's, I know it's not a complete list because he doesn't say anything about, I see in these verses, about their love. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul didn't mention that in the first of Thessalonians. I'm sure it was there. I mean, so he says, here's how you know. One of the reasons, one of many, has the experience of salvation given you a love for people that maybe you wouldn't have even been friends with apart from Christ? Apart from this common experience of knowing Christ. I mean, how do these, how do these instructions and descriptions of the Lord, you know, by this you'll, you, people will know that you're my, my disciples if you have love for one another. How does that, how does that fit with, oh, the, the lone wolf Christian who just prefers to go it alone, his, his only church being the church of four himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some, some cases the only one he's willing to be a part of. <laughs> Or, or how does it fit with those who say, I love Jesus, it's Christians, I can't stand. <laughs> what well, stings a little bit. We know, the, we know there's hypocrisy, right? We know there's hypocrisy, so it stings. But how does that go like as an overall, you know, therefore, I don't want anything to do with any of them. Or, I love Jesus, I hate the church. John, John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He's a liar, for he, does, he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. In, in other words, someone, anyone, any of us are kidding ourselves if we say, I love God, I just hate his people, I don't like his people. <laughs> John says a genuine mark of genuine conversion is a love for God's people. And, and there are others. There are others. I, that we could, we won't in the few minutes we have, but that I think, and, and I think you'll agree if you're familiar, a little bit familiar with the Scripture, that we could ferret this out, right? How about a God-given appetite for God's Word that feeds the soul? A, a sense of having been fed spiritually 
when we read, when we study, when we hear teaching, that's right and good. Uh, a sense of uh, satisfaction and fulfillment when we pour out our hearts to God and worship. Uh, on Sunday and between Sundays. A, a love for the Lord Himself. A, a growing heartbreak, say. And, a, and a, even a hatred for our own sin. Even, even as we struggle with the appetites of the flesh. I think we could find all of that in the New Testament. You know, this is, this is what... A genuine Christian. This is what a, a converted person. This is what shows among many things. You know, this is what it is. You know what I. You know what I can't find in the New Testament though, in terms of, I know you were elect of God. I know you were chosen by God. I know you're the real deal. You know what I can't find. And somebody can correct me on this, but I've I've looked for it. I can't find it. I can't find some. New Testament phrasing of I know you're saved because I was there when you prayed the prayer. I can't find it. I, I know you are. I know you're one of, one of us. You, I was with you in 92 at the Promise Keepers thing when you went to the front. I know because I saw you get baptized when you were a kid. I could say, I know because I baptized you. <laughs> the New Testament doesn't say that. In, in my early days as a Christian, I'm, I'm sure I said things like that to people. I don't remember specific cases, but I'm sure I said things just like that to people. I know because I led you in the prayer. I know because you, you know, I baptized you or something like that. But in the New Testament, as far as I can see, assurance is never, ever grounded in personal ancient history but rather it's always grounded in uh, the present saving, sanctifying activity of God in a believer's life. Now I say, I try to say, and you've heard me say this before if you've heard me, the surest indicator, the surest indicator, the one that's at the top of the list of where, uh, for assurance of where you're going when you die is which way you're headed while you're living. And I shy away from the once saved, always saved, not because I don't believe that if anyone who is genuinely turns to Christ is, you know, they're, they're going to get where they're going. But I, but I shy away from it because of what it's come to mean in so many Christians' thinking. And now I think I, maybe I should say, once saved, now being saved. Once saved, now being saved. Because when God genuinely does a work of salvation in a person, that work can't help but show. Over the, I'm not talking about tomorrow. 
although it often does tomorrow, doesn't it? But over the course of months and over the course of years, old, the old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. So how could there, how could it be, in the minutes left, how could it be that there could be people who claim to believe in Christ or even believe themselves to have faith in Christ who have not been converted? How could that be? Well, you know, I'll tell you what it can't be. It can't be that God saves some people who believe but not others. You know, that we believe and we believe the same, but he saves some of them. He converts some of them. He does a work of, you know, sanctification, some of them, but not all of them. That can't be. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8, those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Equal signs all through the verse. Nobody's lost along the way. It's not a winnowing process. Everybody. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, Philippians 1. So it can't be that, that of the people who believe in Christ, God converts, God saves, he sanctifies some of them. And that's not it. So what's happening when someone says they believe in Christ or they think they believe in Christ, what's happening? Well, the heart is deceitful about all things, uh, above all things. It deceives the one in whose, in whose chest it beats most of all. People are self-deceived about the substance, the, even the reality of their faith they they believe the leaves of their own lives they believe their church going they they rest in their ancient personal history when they made some gesture of belief went through some motions of belief maybe even towed the water of belief that's what that's what has happened so when when someone thinks that he has a faith in Christ, but over the course of many years even, that faith is not saving. Nothing is happening that God says will happen if you believe. Behold, new things have come. Well, what that person thinks of his faith, apparently heaven doesn't think of his faith. Uh, he gives himself too much credit for a faith that Maybe, you know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Maybe he gives himself credit for a faith when it's a mere intellectual acknowledgement. Okay. But it's something less than a total entrusting of himself to Christ's work on his behalf. He says, I have faith. Apparently God and James Straw, the epistle, you know, James... Uh, Luther called it a straw epistle. They had a rough time with it. Apparently they say, are you sure you have faith? Because it's not showing. You 
the terrible thing about spiritual blindness is that it blinds people to their own blindness. You know, they say at least a physically, I've never met a physically blind, I, don't, I haven't known very many, but I've never seen a physically blind person that didn't know he was blind. But the spiritually blind don't even know they're blind. And what a fix they're in. They need someone to open their eyes, at least to their own blindness. A bulletin cover today, I, I used a 19th century painting of uh, Judas' betrayal of Jesus with a kiss. He might be the prototypical uh, unconverted unbeliever. <laughs> and, and someone might think, I'd say, uh, Judas, a believer of any kind? Well, you know, some of you, the sharp ones, will say, that's not right, because Jesus says, John 6, 44 says, Jesus knew from the beginning uh, the, who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So yeah, Jesus said he doesn't have a true, he does not have a true face. My question is, did Judas know who it was who did not believe? Did Judas know? And I think that question's you know unanswered specifically in the but could he have been self-deceived? He, he left everything and followed Jesus just like the rest. He was with him. Did he not uh, achieve a position of trust in the inner circle? Yeah, he's the treasure. He, he had temptations he succumbed to. You know, he helped himself from time to time. But, you know, look at the other disciples. They had issues too. James and John, the sons of thunder. Peter. Judas is a complicated, conflicted, tragic figure because you ask, there's so many questions you'd like to ask. What did he expect to happen when he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jewish authorities? You know, why did he do that? Was it only about the 30 pieces of silver? Was it only about that? But he clearly did not expect to happen what did happen. Or else why would he throw the silver back? And, and he was clearly sorrowful and remorseful after the fact. He killed himself. What was that? Why did he do that? I mean, was it his judgment on himself? You know, is it like self-inflicted punishment for what he'd done? Was it just the pain and shame of it just too much? He couldn't bear it another day? In other words, it's hard to look at Judas and see nothing more than a simple Villain, you know, mustache-twisting villain who's, you know, who just revels in his evil. No, he's conflicted. <laughs> he's a conflicted, complex person. But he does show this. He shows that people can go through the motions of belief to an amazing extent. Jesus, personal treasurer for the ministry fund, without ever having a faith that God recognizes as genuine and, has, and works in the, to transform that person. The Bible warns us all sternly, seriously. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves 
to see whether you are in the faith. I do not believe that means get in the files, find that baptismal certificate. I don't think that means find the guy's phone number who led you in the prayer and call him and get him to assure you that yes, you in fact, you prayed the prayer. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So how do you do that? You ask, is it happening? Is God working in me to make me into the saint that he has destined me to be? Has your faith in Christ made him real to you? In other words, he's real. He's real. We don't make him. We don't make him come into being or make him his reality certain when we when he becomes real to us. It's not that kind of way. He's real. Make no mistake. But is he real to you? In other words, is he someone that you want to please? Is it is he someone? whom you hate to disappoint? Is he someone you talk to? Do you long for the time when our faith is sight and that relationship is something more than that? You know, that we see him. Has faith in Christ given you an appetite for worship? Or has it given you an appetite for his word? Are you, are you growing spiritually? Are you maturing in your faith? Are you, are you growing more solid as a follower of Christ, more committed, less shaky? Are you, are you engaged in battle with your sin, or are you just, is it just a dance? Is, is the sinner into sainthood transformation, is it happening in you? If the honest answer in your heart of hearts, and you, and you, you know, spiritual blindness blinds a person that has it, you got to, boy, Lord, give me insight. <laughs> if the honor, honest answer is no, yeah, I did that way back then, or I did something, or I say I believe now, but it's, you know, it's, it, it's what's the answer? Your faith isn't what you think it is. Because <laughs> God honors faith every single time what he regards as faith because there's what do you do you throw yourself at the feet of Christ you ask him to save you because ultimately and see this I want you to hear this before you run out with the bulletin cover and show someone my heresy ultimately there's no such thing as an unconverted believer, ultimately. There's just unconverted persons who flatter themselves that they are Christians and they believe. So don't you be anybody 
be the tragic case of the self-deceived, unconverted believer. Because there's no such thing. And if the answer is yes, 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 I do see. You know, over the course, I don't, not, we're not bragging on ourselves, are we? But if the honest answer over the course of months and years is yes, yes, what do you do? We don't say, boy, I'm a good person. <laughs> boy, I'm really doing it. Man, I read the Bible, I drink it up, and I love worship, and I do this, and I do that. You don't do that, do you? Because you know it's all of grace. None of that stuff would have come out of you <laughs> apart from the activity of the Holy Spirit in, in you. It's, the fruit of, it's His fruit anyway, isn't it? It's all of Him changing you and me into what we, would, we could not and would not have done in ourselves apart from Him. So it's all grace. And if that's you, you thank Him all the more, you praise Him all the more, and you seek to submit all the more to His sainthood program. Thank you for what you've done in me. Do it more. Forgive me for when I'm... The continuing resistance you know, that we all fight with to become what he's called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, may every person here respond appropriately to, the, to this teaching to make our calling and election sure, as your word says to make sure that we are in the faith. Give us true insight into ourselves. Make, make the scales fall from our eyes if we have them. And may that insight drive us all the more determinedly to you. Sweep away any complacency, any casualness, any lazy compromise with persistent sin in our lives that we may prove to be yours to our everlasting blessing and your eternal glory. Uh, strengthen and deepen the faith of every person, every believer in this place, and grant the beginnings of a true saving faith in any person who is yet outside of Christ while inside the church building. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.